This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com, green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Jimmy Dore Show, The BBC News Quiz, The Young Turks, Le Show, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, The Colbert Report, The Progressive, The Tom Hartman Program, and Slate Magazine with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. There is a grand tradition in this great country of ours. Each quadrennial presidential contest shall be followed biennially by a thorough and robust congressional referendum. And in such instance, whereupon the president's party receives unto it a whooping of ass, (laughs) the president shall then, in due haste, present forth an obligatory post-electoral red-carpeted, impodiumed walk of shame. <laughs> so it is written, so say we all. After what uh, I'm sure was a long night for a lot of you, uh, and needless to say, it was for me, uh, I can tell you that you know some election nights are more fun than others. Like, uh, like I remember this one two years ago. When, when I won, it was, it was awesome. <laughs> there, were, there were balloons, and they had a big flag cake, and Aretha Franklin wore this crazy hat. <laughs> or was it a bird or a pterodactyl? Anyway, go on. People are frustrated. They're deeply frustrated. Over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to travel around the country and meet people where they live and where they work, from backyards to factory floors. I did some talking, but mostly I did a lot of listening. And did you know most people think I'm Muslim? I mean, they're crazy out there. The men and women who sent us here don't expect Washington to solve all their problems. But they do expect Washington to work for them, not against them. And so I have decided and have announced to my staff that I will no longer work against the American people. You got me. Zing! (laughs) Message received. So a leader humbled and a press corps at the ready to plumb the lessons learned from a dark and difficult electoral rebuke. I'm wondering, sir, if you believe that health care reform that you work so hard on uh, is in danger at this point. Do you accept the fact that any kind of spending to create jobs is dead at this point? Is it possible that there are a majority of Americans who think your policies are taking us in reverse. Are you willing to make any changes in your leadership style? Who do you think speaks to the true voice of the American people right now, you or John Boehner? Uh, Yeah, Mr. President, Todd Patterson, UPI. Mr. President, do do you suck? And a quick follow-up. Do you suck so bad you don't even know how sucky you are? And I would like uh, your answer, if you would, in the form of, you suck. But... But, of course, the key to any presidential press conference is not the question and answer session, but the intangibles. Let's go to the analysis. The press conference was lame. It was vanilla. He seemed so glum and depressed. He was plainly annoyed. He looked shell-shocked. He didn't look like a a man on his game. He looked like he was passing a gallstone. He could have been... Uh, self-deprecating. Why not be a little bit humorous? Right, Just break the ice. He comes out, little spring. He says, okay, God didn't give me big ears for nothing. I heard you. <laughs> Mrs. Parker Spitzer is right. 
Obama could have been like, I got big ears, but I'm not Dumbo. <laughs> I get it. He could have done a whole, whole ton of jokes, like, like uh, white presidents take a midterm electoral defeat like this. I can't believe you rebuked my policy. <laughs> but black presidents, black presidents take an electoral defeat like, oh, no, you did not rebuke my policies. No, you didn't. What? But of course, the press conference was an hour long. And that's really long. Give me something I can use. Give me something I can pop into the microwave and eat on the way to the oven where my other food is being prepared. If you're not reflecting on your policy agenda, is it possible voters can conclude you're still not getting it? Getting it? What is it? Isn't it just a substitute generic for whatever you project onto it? I mean, as pronouns go, it's amongst the vaguest. It won't even choose a sex. I guess the real question is, is it contagious? There are just a lot of Americans out there who think the president doesn't get it. Does he get it? Do you think he gets it? I got the sense today he didn't get it today. Not only do the politicians not get it, the voters don't get it either. Did the president get it? Did he get it? Some say maybe he doesn't get it. He thinks that you don't get it. He doesn't get it. Does he get it? Even if he doesn't get it, as one suggests he doesn't, he needs to act as if he does. What? Huh? <laughs> Humor, are you suggesting the president fake it? <laughs> Wait, unless, is it orgasms? If you're like most Americans, you like to collaborate with others to work on projects as a way to get others to do your work for you. The downside of this is that you would normally have to interact with these people in person to show them exactly how you'd like your work to be done. Well, now with GoToMeeting, there's no need to ever see another person again. Using GoToMeeting's easy-to-use software, you can meet online using audio, instant chat, and screen sharing to efficiently and effectively delegate tasks away from yourself without anyone knowing you haven't shaved or kept up on virtually any personal hygiene in days. You can experience your first 45 days of this kind of bliss by visiting GoToMeeting.com and using the promo code PODCAST. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code PODCAST, for this special free 45-day trial. If you watched the election returns and then, you know, on TV, you heard the boring victory speeches and the boring concession speeches, I'm so proud, thank you so much, yada, 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 wake me up for the next cycle. Uh -huh. But the speeches weren't always that boring. We happened to get our hands on the first drafts of some of those speeches when the candidates <laughs> let their true feelings out. Carl will now read some of those first drafts. Your job, tell us who it was. Do that two times out of three, you'll win our prize. Ready to play? All right. All right, here's your first, first draft. This one is a victory speech. My fellow Americans, this is not the time to celebrate. This is the time to go freaking nuts. Your new speaker is surround sound, suckers. <laughs> So that was the election night inner monologue of whom? Um, is that Bill Boehner? Not Bill Boehner, it's John Boehner. We'll give it to you though. Ah, good. Okay, thanks. You both got the name Boehner right. Boehner. Boehner. And you pronounced Boehner. it right. The next Speaker of the House cried during his victory speech on live TV Tuesday night. He's been known to do that before. So that's the first difference between Mr. Boehner and the outgoing Nancy Pelosi. His face works. <laughs> 
Now, now people sometimes make fun of John Boehner's weird orangey skin, but come on, it is natural. It's all natural. He does this every autumn. <laughs> Soon the spring will come and he'll be a verdant green again. I think that we should all applaud a racial barrier being broken. <laughs> he's he's he, our first burnt Sienna house speaker. Uh, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> what do we think about the tears? I mean, personally, I thought it was awesome. I'm going to start keeping track of every time he kind of chokes up and oh, God, tears he, he's up. He's a poor man, Sally Field. I was waiting. You <laughs> <laughs> like me. You really yeah, like geez. me. Now, Mr. Boehner, for the last few years, has led the opposition to President Obama, sometimes in very strident terms, so it will be fun to watch them try to work together. He'll sit behind the president at the State of the Union address, for example. He'll be rolling his eyes and making air quotes whenever the president says things like progress or I am an American citizen. <laughs> Allison, Allison, here is your next first draft of a speech. I want to thank the people of Nevada and congratulations to Ms. Angle. Wait, wait. What? I won? <laughs> Seriously? That was a senator who surprised everyone, probably including himself, by winning re-election. Who? Um. Hmm. <laughs> He's that boring. Yeah. <laughs> An indication of why the election was, was so, so close. close. Yeah. There you go. Is it, is it oh. Reed? It is Harry Reed. Oh, Very good. yeah. Harry Reed. Right. I know, Reed. I know. He could, be, he could be standing in front of you and going, Hi, I'm Harry Reid, Senator from Nevada. And he'd leave the room and you'd be like, Was there someone here? Senator Ambien. Anyway. Harry Reid, of course, has an undertaker's looks and a corpse's charm. <laughs> and as the election season began, he was the most hated man in Nevada. He was blamed for everything from the high unemployment rate to the time the roulette wheel at Caesar's Palace landed on black four freaking times in a row. But... He did a very smart thing. He found somebody to run against who was marginally more loathed than he is. He basically had two options to pick from, and only two. He could run against Sharon Angle, a far-right state legislator, or he could run against a toner cartridge mailed from Yemen. <laughs> and luckily for Reed, the toner cartridge decided to drop out to spend more time with its printer. <laughs> She's not so much a Sharon angle as an obtuse angle. She is. Very good, Mo. And I don't think she's a cute angle. How long have you been working on that? I love geometry jokes. You know, she was too much of a right angle. Yeah. Uh. My favorite story from the Sharon Angle campaign, so she, she addresses an audience of um, Latino students, and they're upset because she's been doing mm. these horribly racist anti-Latino ads, and they get angry at her, and she's like, well, you know, I, who's, no, who's to know who's Latino? You all look Asian to me. She said this. And I, th that's not the best part. The best part was like these students who had no idea who she was before they were marched into this room. One of them was heard by a member of the press to turn to her friend and say, I hate that lady. <laughs> Well, no, and she took a, she's pretty radical. I mean, she took a very strong stand on securing our border with China. So. She did. <laughs> so, Allison, here is your last rejected first draft. It's somebody who took a shellacking, as he put it, even though he wasn't on the ballot. I gave you health care, a stimulus package, and an adorable hypoallergenic dog. 
What more do you people want? That was somebody who was a little more contrite, a little, when he finally addressed the nation the day after the election. Who? That would be Barack Obama. It would be. It would be. Um, he seemed, to many observers, tired during his press conference post-election. That's because John Boehner kept calling him all through the night and whispering, this call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> uh, Obama referred to the election as, as you heard, a shellacking... But because he is always forward-thinking and reasonable, he pointed out that a nice coat of shellac will make the White House more energy efficient. <laughs> and, of course, shiny. So how are they going to work together? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, maybe what they should do, this is a serious suggestion in case anybody's listening, bring in a couples counselor. They hate each other. They have to work together. So they'll learn communication skills, like making I statements. Like, I feel you're vetoing a lot of our bills. <laughs> the president will be like, okay, I hear that. I feel, I feel like you keep impeaching me. Sometimes I wish I was brave. I wish I was stronger. Wish I could feel no pain. Wish I was young. Wish I was shy. I wish I was honest. Wish I was him, not I. Cause I feel so mad. I have a message, a message from the Tea Party, a message that is loud and clear and does not mince words. We've come to take our government back. That's teabagger Rand Paul, who was victorious in his run for Senate in Kentucky. He's pledging to take our government back. How far back, Rand Paul? I think Rand Paul would like to take it back to before the Civil Rights Act. Let's move on to Creedbagger Christine O'Donnell. Christine O'Donnell lost big, but she's not going to let a minor detail like losing spoil a perfectly good victory party. We worked hard. We had an incredible victory. Be encouraged. We have won. Um, no, Christine, I double-checked it, and you lost. Don't look now, but it's crazy man Carl Paladino. I have a message for Andrew Cuomo, the next governor of New York. I've always said my baseball bat is a metaphor for the people who want to take their government back. As our next governor, you can grab this handle and bring the people with you to Albany. Or you can leave it untouched and run the risk of having it wielded against you. Because make no mistake... You have not heard the last of Carl Palladino. Ooh, that's some tough talk by Carl Palladino threatening Governor-elect Cuomo that if he doesn't do what Palladino wants, he's going to come back in four years and lose again. Now, the conventional wisdom is that the Tea Partiers really cleaned up last night. Then they swept and took control of the entire Congress. But just how well did they actually do? I need, I need some numbers. 140 candidates backed by local or national Tea Party groups ran for Congress yesterday. 45 of them won. When the handful of remaining races are tallied, as many as 95 of those Tea Partiers will have lost. Wow. So out of 140 tea baggers, only 45 of them won. Huh. That's interesting. 
because it goes against everything I've heard on every news show since. Okay, so contrary to conventional wisdom, the Tea Partiers didn't really do as well as everyone said, but they didn't actually hurt the Republican Party, did they? And even some Republicans are saying that if Tea Partiers like Christine O'Donnell had not pulled victory from the GOP's grasp in states like Delaware and Colorado, Republicans would now control the Senate as well. Now, why the teabaggers didn't particularly do that well, the Republicans did very well. So well that they're going to get a new speaker. It's John Boehner, whose skin color doesn't rhyme with anything. Hey, John, what are your plans now that you're in control of the House? We recognize uh, this is a time for us to roll up our sleeves and go to work uh, on the people's priorities. That's great. After 19 years in Congress, John Boehner says it's time he rolls up his sleeves and get down to working on the people's priorities. And what are those priorities, John? Creating jobs, cutting spending, and reforming the way Congress does its business. Oh, you mean so basically the opposite of everything you guys did uh, two years ago when you were in power. Okay, I got you. And now that John Boehner and the Republicans have a majority in the Congress, everybody's talking it's time for bipartisanship. They have to work together. That's what the American people want. That's what everybody says. But let's remember how this new brand of Republicans sees bipartisanship. Just what is bipartisanship to the modern-day Republican? To us, bipartisanship is them being forced to agree with us after we have politically cleaned their clocks and beaten them. And that has to be what we're focused on. Okay, so that's just Rush Limbaugh, and that's just him giving some hyperbole, I'm sure. I'm sure the Republicans are going to compromise. I mean, they're grown-ups. They want to get their policies through, and now they have a little power. I'm sure they're going to compromise. That's what everybody says has to be done. So who's going to compromise first? Is it going to be... The new Speaker of the House, John Boehner? This is not a time for compromise. Okay, that's new Speaker of the House, John Boehner, down as a no on compromise. How about the Chairman of the House Republican Conference, Mike Pence? Are you going to compromise? If I haven't been clear enough yet, let me say again, no compromise. Wow, okay, so what about the Senate Republican Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell? Is he going to compromise? What does Mitch say? Over the next two years, he says, quote, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. I mean, come on, you guys. There's got to be some room for compromise. You guys only have one House of Congress. I mean, come on. We're all Americans, aren't we? We can come together and work together. There's got to be room for that. Where is there room for any compromise? With Marxism, or socialism, or liberalism, where is the compromise with evil? Okay, so if the Republicans in Congress, the Republicans in the Senate, and even the professional right doesn't want to compromise, what's going to happen? Gridlock? What about the people? What about the tea-backing people? Let's go to Mark Meckler, the founder of the Tea Party Patriots. Are the Tea Party Patriots people ready to compromise? The American people have spoken loud and clear, and they're not in a flexible mood. They are not in a mood for compromise. Holy crap. So you're telling me the Republicans in the Senate aren't going to compromise, the Republicans in the House aren't going to compromise, you're telling me that the professional right isn't going to compromise, and the Republican people aren't going to compromise either? Well, who is going to compromise? I'm willing to compromise in the past, and I'm going to be willing to compromise going forward. We have politically cleaned their clocks and beaten them. 
Okay, well, thank God somebody's going to go ahead and compromise. But you know what scares me the most? I just get this eerie feeling that the teabaggers, they're just so 120,000% owned by corporations that they don't even really care about what's happening to the working people of America. And not only do they don't care, they don't even know. They don't even know to care. In fact, I have a feeling they don't even know that there are poor people or even a middle class in America. The thing is, is we're all interconnected. There are no rich, there are no middle class, there are no poor. We all are interconnected in the economy. Really, Rand Paul? There are no poor people? There are no middle class in America? There are no rich? Well, if you don't think that there's poor people or middle class people in America, then how are you going to push policies that are in their interest if you don't even know they're there? I mean... Of course there's a middle class in America, Rand, if you haven't noticed. That's what makes America great, or that's what I was told. That's what separates us from the rest of the world, our thriving middle class. The ability for anybody who was willing to work 40 hours a week could have a decent life in America, which is why everybody wants to come to America. That's what I thought that made us different than the rest of the world, our middle class. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multi-dollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide, and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. Stay super late. Tonight, picking apples, making pies Put a little something in our lemonade And take it with us, put half away In a fake empire We're half awake in a fake empire Andy, where has a tea party got out of hand? Uh, well, this is the American midterm election, which saw um, success up to a point for the Tea Party with their slogan of claiming back America, which, strictly speaking, should be our slogan, but, um, <laughs> or the Native Indian slogan. But it was, it's a setback for Barack Obama, and it, it, the main problem seems to be the level of expectation for him as the first American black president um, he, he has this air of somebody who knows what he's doing. You know, he has that lovely, languid, physical way of moving. He, the way he talks is so elegant. He exudes composure and competence. And the American people just aren't used to that in a president. <laughs> you know, nobody in America was disappointed by Bush from the outset. They knew he was special needs. They, <laughs> You know, all the signs were there. They could see the banjo playing, smile. 
you know, the inability to talk, the inability to successfully eat a pretzel. You know, they, they knew he was going to be crap and he didn't disappoint them. And similarly with Clinton, they knew, they knew Clinton was going to lie to them because he had form. Like, in fact, America was happy to be Clinton's intern. You know, they knew he'd behave appallingly and he did. The problem with Obama is he's got this aura of confidence and, and ability. And he needs to lose that, <laughs> to be honest. So he needs to go into his next press conference and knock the lectern over, maybe choke on a savoury snack, <laughs> lose the nuclear attack codes like Clinton did for a few weeks. And he's got to lose that slogan. That's a disaster. Yes, we can. Yeah. He's got to change that to something like, well, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> something like that. I hate to disagree with you, Andy, but I think Obama's speech has become more hesitant. Mm. I think he's, he's now got longer pauses uh, in his speech. <laughs> <laughs> and I worry it's contagious. <laughs> Maybe he's being told what to say in his ear and the connection's not as good as it used to be. Maybe yeah. that's well, what that, it is. That happened with Reagan. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this programme so long, I, I can remember when Reagan got it wrong and he stood there and he blanked and he was getting fed messages by CIA oh. into his earpiece. He only got caught when he said... Why doesn't the old bugger say something? <laughs> I think Obama is losing his confidence a bit. I mean, every single newspaper run those photos of him looking really sad and a bit broken. And um, we saw the same thing with Nick Clegg. Both men in the run-up to the elections were so confident and vibrant. Everyone was like, wow, and everyone wanted them to be great. And now they, I mean, Clegg looks like a broken man now. Look at him on the front bench. He looks nervous and shifty. He can't make eye contact with anyone. Nick Clegg now looks like a dog with the runs that's been allowed into a really posh house <laughs> with white carpets, right? That's what he looks like to me. He can't make eye contact with anyone. You try making eye contact with a dog that's got the runs and it, it can't be done. It can't. I've tried many times because a dog understands the concept of shame and so does Nick Clegg. <laughs> hey, there was some good news, though. Hmm. Uh, California, Jerry Brown's back. Yes, 72 yeah. years old. Yeah. How he great is that? Once the youngest ever governor, yep. now he's the oldest ever governor, mm. so it's uh, alarming. If anybody's a fan of William Hague, he's going to be around for decades yet. <laughs> I mean, the Tea Party itself is a, a nonsense. Hankering after some 18th century idyll of when America was pure and perfect. But I mean, the Boston Tea Party, well, they, they weren't freedom fighters, they were mostly just a bunch of local entrepreneurs who got irritated. Yeah, they were tax dodgers. Irritated, that's right. They were, they were the Lord Ashcrofts of their day. Um, I hate that they've, that they've stolen this from us, because tea parties were a thing that I did as a child. Yeah. I mean, not, not with China Cups and Dolls, I used to form right-wing extremist parties, but... Um, <laughs> It's all very easy just to dismiss the Tea Party as backward-looking simpletons, basically. <laughs> <laughs> the Tea Party does contain the kind of politicians that make Michael Gove look normal. <laughs> and they're, they're whingers as well. I saw one being interviewed on Newsnight, and uh, he said, the Tea Party is not a party, it's a movement. And he thought, well, if you don't want to be thought of as a party, don't have the word party in your name. <laughs> 
maybe a Brahmin needs to just be a bit more unpredictable and just go a bit nuts because he's very controlled, isn't he? Mm. Very calm. I think he should maybe just start up a chainsaw occasionally during press conferences, <laughs> just to unnerve the opposition a bit. Wear a hockey mask more often. Barack Obama <laughs> suffered a catastrophic defeat in the U.S. midterm elections as the Republicans, thanks in part to the Tea Party, gained control of the House of Representatives. Obama admitted the results had given him a late and uncomfortable night. I'm the same with cheese, exactly the same. We've had a lot of discussion today about the elections and which way the Democrats should go. And for good reason. Now that Democrats have been routed, that is the fundamental question. How will they react? Will they cower and run toward the Republicans as usual? So far, the answer seems to be a resounding yes. The question is going to be, can Democrats and Republicans uh, sit down together and come up with a set of ideas that address those core concerns? I'm confident that we can. Uh, I think that there are some areas where it's going to be very difficult for us to agree on. But I think there are going to be a whole bunch of areas where we can agree on. Yeah, on Republican ideas. The Republicans will not concede to any of the Democratic ideas. In fact, what do the Republicans think about reaching out to Democrats? Well, it can be summarized in two words. Hell no. So far, John Boehner, Eric Cantor, and Mike Pence, all Republican leadership in the House, have all said that they will not compromise at all on their priorities and that there's no need for bipartisanship. Isn't that convenient now that they're in charge of the House? Unless, of course, it's Democrats bowing their heads and agreeing to Republican legislation. And today, Mitch McConnell doubled down on his statement that his main goal is not to improve the economy, to create jobs or help the country, but to defeat President Obama. But the fact is, if our primary legislative goals are to repeal and replace the health spending bill, to end the bailouts, cut spending, and shrink the size and scope of government, the only way to do all of those things is to put someone in the White House who won't veto any of these things. Mr. President, does it look like they want to work with you? Continuing to reach out to these guys, as you've promised to do, is bordering on, well, stupid. You reached out to them for two straight years. And how'd that work out for you? You see those elections? You see the results? It didn't work out too well, did it? The Republicans, on the other hand, went with the Rush Limbaugh strategy of not giving an inch of ground and won overwhelmingly. If the lesson the president learns from this is that he needs to compromise more and reach out to Republicans more, I, I got to be honest with you, I feel sorry for him. And more importantly, I feel sorry for the country. We're about to have two years of Republican tax cuts for the rich with what seems to be no effective Democratic opposition. In fact, the president signaled that he'll sign off on those extra benefits for the rich today. And so it begins. This is all despite the fact that the Democrats have the White House and the Senate. That's what happens when you won't even fight for your own principles. That's fundamental weakness. And that's the Obama White House right now, unfortunately. I think I speak for a lot of people when I ask you, Mr. President, will you, for the love of God, stand up and fight back already? Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Don't give up the fight.
So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoy this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55 a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Most people think great God will come from the sky. President Obama went on a uh, late-night television show this week to be interviewed, to connect with the youthful audience. And he was uh, asked by the host whether uh, he would campaign again with the same hopeful rhetoric that he did in uh, 2008. And uh, President Obama replied, "I, I I would say, yes, I can, but... And then the audience erupted in laughter, and then he finished. It's not going to happen overnight. So um didn't take long for a well-known hip-hop artist, Well I Never, to mash that up. We've been warned against offering the people of this nation for all hope. But here's what I think is fair, that over the last two years, in an emergency situation... Uh, our basic attitude was, we got to get some things done. But in order to do that, basically worked with the process as opposed to transform the process. And, and there's no doubt that that frustrated folks. But yes, we can. Yes, we can. But. Yes, we can, but, yes, we can, but, yes, we can, but, it frustrates me. I think what I would say is, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen overnight, not gonna happen overnight. but, Larry Summers did a heck of a job, pun intended. You know, I'm feeling great about uh, where the American people are considering what we've gone through. But we've gone through the two toughest years of any time since the Great Depression. And in light of that, uh, the fact that people have been resilient, that folks are still out there working and opening businesses, working in the community, looking after their families, uh, taking care of their responsibilities, that's encouraging. So there's still a lot of good stuff happening. But, yes, we can. But, yes, we can. But, yes, we can. But, yes, we can. Yes, we can. But, People are frustrated. 
know, a lot of folks are hurting out there still. And, you know, in that environment, I think that they're hoping that uh, we can do a little bit better uh, here in Washington than we've been doing. But, yes, we can. But, yes, we can. But, the thing about this election that all the mainstream media analysts were telling you was going on is that this was a reaction to Barack Obama's overarching attempt to reform the American system. And you heard it over and over again. These are Americans who are voting against the president and his party because they're uncomfortable with how far he took the government down this road and they don't like it and they want to go back to another time. No one was really telling you what time they want to go back to because for the same reason that you aren't seeing the Republicans out there or even Democrats anymore proposing ideas for solutions because no one wants to get shot down once they do that. These mainstream media analysts weren't saying that either. They weren't saying, well, what Americans really want is a solution to this. They were saying, well, this is obviously uh, anger at the president's overreaching attempts to get the government involved in this, that, and the other thing. Too much liberalism, too much blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, you couldn't have it more wrong. And it's not even a question of liberal versus conservative. It's a question that I think um, a British journalist, and this is what's funny, this is what's funny. In the same way that only the British seem to be able to make a good Batman movie, which is funny because there's no more quintessentially American comic book hero than Batman, and yet um, they're the only ones who seem to be able to do a good Batman movie. Maybe they're the only ones, because of their perspective as outsiders, but close enough to us to kind of understand us, to understand what our system needs and what the president should have done. And if the president had done this, well... He would have done a lot better in the election that just happened. Let me tell you uh, the piece, and my thanks to one of the uh, listeners of the show for uh, making sure I saw this. I might have seen it anyway because I read the British paper, The Independent, anyway, because that's where Robert Fisk is published. But um, there's a writer who writes for it named uh, Johan Hari, and in his uh, Tuesday, 26th of October, 2010 article, he wrote a piece called The Real Reason Obama Has Let Us All Down. And this is the reason the president got creamed in this election. And if he had followed Mr. Hari's advice, this never would have happened. I mean, let me put it this way. He wouldn't have lost as big as he lost yesterday. And if that's the case, that proves that all those mainstream media commentators and analysts were totally wrong about what the American public was thinking and seeing and voting for. Hari writes a piece about... You know, how excited he was when Obama got elected and how he, too, shed a tear, as many people did, an African-American getting to be in office, someone who had this hope and change agenda at a time when it seemed so necessary and so needed. And then he goes on to say, many of the things I've said to you and many of the things that some of you very um, strong Obama supporters have been angry at me about. But the reason that the legislation that the president passed is you know, such a letdown compared to what he was running on, full of loopholes, full of lobbyists money. I mean. Well, we've talked about this before, and we'll talk about it again, but if that's, you know, change, change is not good enough, right? Then he goes on to say what the president should have done. He says, from near the end of the piece, quote, I'm sure Obama believes he's doing the best he can in a corrupt system, but it's not true. There is another way. 
Imagine if, he writes, when he came to office, he had articulated the real solutions, and when he was blocked, named the corrupt corporations and the corrupt senators, stopping him getting health care for sick children or preventing another crash. Explain that it is time to drive the money lenders out of the temple of American democracy. Tell the American people that they will always be screwed over until they end this corruption and pay for the democratic process themselves and propose serious measures to achieve it. Call for a mass movement to back him, just like Franklin Roosevelt did and succeeded. At least then there would be a possibility of real progress, he writes. Would the outcome conceivably have been worse than this, being beaten by the foaming Tea Party Republicans with almost nothing to show for it? End quote. Well, I think Hari's got it wrong when he thinks that the foaming, so-called foaming Tea Party Republicans beat the president. I think basically it's mostly the Republican establishment uh, that beat the president, and they beat the president for exactly what Hari said. See, those mainstream media analysts who were telling you that the reason that the Democrats lost and the president was rebuked was because he went too far have it completely wrong. He was rebuked because he played it too safe. Which is the typical, by the way, playbook in American politics, right? That's the typical playbook. Compromise, let the lobbyists come in and water things down, work with the other side, don't upset anyone too much or you won't get your programs passed. People don't seem to understand. It wasn't about getting the programs passed in a flawed form so you could run on that agenda. It was about standing up to all these things that are tearing the country down. And even if you get shot down for standing up, people will respect you and support you. President Obama didn't lose here, folks, because he went too far. He lost because he proved himself to be just another politician, which is not what the people who elected him were looking for. They were looking for something different. And he sold himself as something different. And had he stood up and actually governed as something different, the people would have voted to keep him in power because we're still looking for something different. You didn't hear one single person on any of those mainstream media electoral analytical boards saying, listen, if President Obama had got up there and challenged everything and gone down in flames, the people would have voted for him again to give him another chance. As a matter of fact, think about this, ladies and gentlemen, if he'd have stood up there and done what Johan Hari told him to do and what we've told him to do in past shows, he probably wouldn't have gotten any of these things passed, which many of us think is so flawed or are so flawed anyway, that they're not going to help. But he would have been able to say, I did what you elected me to do, and these corrupt people blocked me and vote for me again because you know I'm not corrupt and I'll keep trying. I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. Had he done that, even I would have voted for him. He would be standing up there and saying what we've said needs to be said forever. Somebody who sits there and names names and gets on television and says the emperor has no clothes and the system is corrupt and until somebody does something about that, nothing's really going to get fixed. If the president had said that, ladies and gentlemen, I'd have gone door-to-door -door campaigning for him. And you know what? A ton of the supporters of Barack Obama who voted for him the first time, which I didn't, but a ton of the people who did that would have been energized enough to vote in this election, and you might have seen a different result. You might have seen a Tea Party version of the Democrats, though, because think of how many Democrats would have been, you know, against the president had the president actually gone up on television and, you know, thrown the moneylenders out of the temple, because we all know about half those moneylenders are Democrats, too, would have made a lot of enemies in his own party. But again, if the president had alienated all the corrupt Democrats, that's another reason I'd have supported him, wouldn't you? So the president plays it safe, and this is what he gets. If he had played it, you know, thrown for a Hail Mary, would it have been any worse than it is now? I got news for you. The country was looking for a Hail Mary.
and he didn't deliver it because he was, you know, I'll say it right here, too wimpy, like all of them. None of them want to do that. They get into Washington, they play the game the way it's played, and nobody throws Hail Marys. When was the last president who threw a Hail Mary? The American people wanted a person who wasn't a politician. They wanted a leader. They wanted somebody who was going to be different. When this president proved himself to be as much alike as the rest of the political class, that's when he lost the support. I would have loved to have heard one mainstream media analyst say that. Because you know what? Then they would have actually been helping the situation because a lot of Americans would have said that's exactly right. And some other politician somewhere would have said, you know what? I think the American people are ready for a Hail Mary. Maybe if I throw one, I'll get some credit for it. And that would once again, you know, these people are like lemmings. If they see a policy working, they'll jump on board. And I'm not sure I'd be that upset if they were all throwing Hail Marys, even if they didn't believe that that was the right thing to do. But that, listen, the public is rewarding people who throw deep now, so I'll throw deep too. We are at a time in our history, ladies and gentlemen, facing such overwhelming problems. You know, we're behind in this football game, 45-3. to three. It's time to throw, you know, the deep ball. And the president ran on an I'm-going-to-throw-a-Hail-Mary agenda. And when he got in there and threw dinks and dunks and told us to be happy with scoring seven points, and then he's mad that we're not giving him credit for scoring a touchdown here or there, he doesn't understand, and neither do any of the mainstream media analysts who told you that the president was punished for overreaching. No, he was punished for underreaching. Will you win? It's your show now. So what's it gonna be? Cause people will tune in. How many train wrecks do we need to see before we lose touch? And we thought this was low. Well, it's bad getting worse on Where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV shows. Where'd all the good people go? Let's get right to it. We've got some more results to pass on to you. In Illinois, the race between Mark Kirk and Alexei Giannoulis is still too close to call for President Obama's old Senate seat. All we know for sure that if the past is any indication, one of these two men will be our country's next first black president. <laughs> it's a great day. It's a great day for America. Speaking of which, it seems like this whole election is really just about one thing. Well, there's no question that this midterm election is a referendum on Obama's policies. It's all a referendum on Obama. This is a referendum on the president. It's, on a, it's a referendum on, uh, on his uh, a campaign slogan of yes we can. 66% of you said it was a referendum on the anointed one, President Obama. This election is a referendum on Obama. Yes, it is a referendum on Obama. So let's see how he's doing around the country. Right now in the race for Florida's 8th District, Republican Daniel Webster has won with 56%, Democrat Alan Grayson with 38%, and for Obama, 0%. <laughs> What a humiliating defeat for the most powerful man in the world. And in the vote over California's Prop 19, which would legalize marijuana in the state, Barack Obama is trailing both yes and no. He's even being beaten by write-in candidate Led Zeppelin rules. So just what, what does tonight mean for President Obama and the future of the Democratic Party? Joining me now, the editor of The Nation, Katrina Vandenhoevel. Thank you so much. Thank you. Katrina, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for wearing a leather jacket. Now, <laughs> madam, 
This you really is believe a Led Zeppelin rules. <laughs> Absolutely. You're not down with Zepp? No. All right. Madam, this is a, a, a broad repudiation of not only the president, but the Democrats. They I have disagree. lost 47 seats already, four in the Senate, 36 in the House, seven governors. They right. hate you. Let me get They let me hate your no, policies. No. Listen, apologize no. to America for the president. I, I will not apologize. apologize. Repudiate, uh, before the cock crows, repudiate him three times. Listen, I will not repudiate. Um, I am against despair. Tonight is not a good night, but. Uh, I believe you stand and fight at times like this, and I think what we're looking really? at... Really? Even Democrats? Absolutely. And I think we're looking, we're looking at 30 years plus of working people being shafted in this country, and the economic pain then in this country... why did Obama have right. a jobs here's, program? Here's, here's, here's he went the with health care, cap single... and trade, immigration, where's the job program? All there was was the stimulus package. No, that's not true. That's all there was. The stimulus package was too small. We can argue about why. But here's, here are the three reasons I think we're in this place right now besides 30 years of shafting the working class. You don't One is the original sin, no, that he bailed out the banks, the big banks, without demands on them and without heads rolling. He was too kind. He played footsie with Republicans who wanted to destroy his presidency. And what are you talking about? He, he would not compromise. He, he would not compromise. He demobilized a base that was out there at your great rally. He demobilized his base. The not people. My rally. Listen, my husband's here. He's from Kentucky. Yes? Yeah, 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 yeah. You dance with those that run you. And those people, young people, African Americans, young women, working people, brought Obama to the White House, and instead he demobilized that base well, that, in favor why, of an inside this, like, the White House million person email list. That was the neutron bomb, right? right you know why what he does he now? Fire Here's what he does off. now. Here's what he does now. Democrats are weak. We need you a strong leader. You got to expose. You got to expose these Republicans. Listen, Rand Paul. He's in a state where thousands of minors die every year, and he wants to dismantle federal regulations. These Republicans. Let the free market determine what it, what entails oh, do, living. Do what? Do. You know what? We need to not dismantle government, which is what these Tea Partiers want to do. We need to take it back. Listen, people don't want government on their back. So you're not listening. So what I'm hearing, what I'm hearing is, you're not back. listening to America. America has spoken loudly you, and clearly, and Katrina Vanderhoof is pouring wax in her ear like Odysseus. No, I'm not. What do you say to that, those people, the Tea Partiers, who say, get government off my Medicare? majority of Tea Partiers want Social Security benefits, they want Medicare. If they don't want it, let them live without it. But I say that the Democrats must regain their role as a party of the people, by the people, for the people, because money in this election has been a dagger directed at the heart of our democracy. And we need, once again, and progressives can play this role, we need to stand tall and ensure that there, this is a party of political courage, not political contributions, because otherwise we are in deep I was going to say it for you, but I forgot we're live. <laughs> Katrina Van Hoobel, thank, thank you. you so much thank for you. joining me. Thank you. Katrina Van Hoobel. They say you got to lose a couple fights to win. It's hard to tell from where I'm sitting. They say that this is where the fun begins. I guess it's time that I was quitting. Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, 
and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. It was a brutal election night, and nothing was more brutal than the crushing defeat of my senator, Russ Feingold. Feingold lost 52-47 to Ron Johnson, a wealthy plastics manufacturer with no political experience, a guy who believes global warming is lunacy. The old rules of politics no longer apply. You can win every debate, as Feingold did. You can practically get every newspaper endorsement in the state, as Feingold did, including some very conservative ones. You can be a loyal and dutiful servant of your constituents, coming home every weekend and visiting every county every year, as Feingold did. And you can still lose. One big reason is money. Outside groups poured almost $5 million into ads against Feingold. How ironic it is that Feingold, who more than any other senator, tried to limit corporate money in politics, succumbed to that very poison. I didn't agree with Russ Feingold on everything, but he was a fantastic senator. You won't find a smarter, more diligent, more independent, more courageous person in that chamber. He was the reincarnation of fighting Bob LaFollette, but with shorter hair. Now Russ Feingold is gone. And the Senate is all the poorer for it. And Wisconsin, a less proud place to live in today. We had a number of guests on the show, and one of the guests that we had was a woman who is with the uh, the, the Campus Progress, I think it's called, and uh, it's Center for American Progress's outreach to college campuses. And she was pointing out that that a lot of young people are feeling I don't I don't want to put words in her mouth, so uh, this this is not a quote. This is this is my carry away from from my conversation with her. That a lot of young people felt that they were voting for serious, rapid, and dramatic change. And perhaps it's political naivete. Or perhaps it's that the president didn't do what he said he was going to do. But, you know, the, the, the bottom line was that they weren't showing up. I mean, the numbers that we saw showed that the youth vote didn't turn out last night the way it did in, uh, you know, two years ago. Now, that's not unusual. First of all, a lot of people are, you know, they're looking for a job. They're working. They don't have time. They they just had a kid. They've got, you know, they've got they're 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 just insanely busy. I have to say for myself. I mean, there was a period of time in my life, which was mostly my 30s and early 40s, where I was fairly non-political because I was busting my butt trying to trying to make enough money to support a household and put three kids through school. So, you know, that said, I think that that probably is the major thing that accounts for the fact that you see a lot of political activity in people who are not yet married or or not yet, you know, really seriously in the job market and college students. And you see a lot of political activity in people who are well-established in their professions, you know, typically in their 50s or even retired. And why elderly people are 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 very politically active. I mean, the the most likely group to vote are people over sixty, over sixty five. 
I mean, the the older people get, you know, until they reach the point where they become physically or mentally limited by their age, the older people get, the more likely they are to vote, to to be a large cohort of voters. So there's that. But I also think that the president uh, did himself a disservice when he went on MTV a couple of days ago. And people asked him tough, young people asked him tough questions. Well, why didn't you repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell? And he, he's going, well, we got, you got to understand process and how things work. And they didn't want to know about that. They wanted to know, why didn't you do it? And he, he could have said, you know, Republicans wouldn't let us. Or we couldn't make it happen. Or the military freaked out and I didn't want to, you know, blow. I mean, he could have just given a straight answer. He didn't. So this, I believe, I know that the generation that's coming up now, the people in their 20s, the people in their 30s, the people in their teens, the generation that's coming up now, when they're my age and they're the people in power, we're talking just 10, 20 years from now, you are going to see green energy. You are going to see gays having equal civil rights with everybody else. You are going to see the uh, you know, African Americans and other minority groups having civil rights. You are going to see, I believe, the reformation of religious fundamentalism. You're going to see more tolerance. You're going to see a world that works better. I, I, I have so much optimism about this younger generation. And, and, the, and the future course of this country. And that generation thought when they were voting for Obama that he was one of them. You know, like I said, he was the nation's Rorschach test. And so far over the last two years, instead, he's been governing it more or less. I mean, he's doing an okay job, but he's been governing basically like Bill Clinton uh, as a compromiser. And this morning, Paul Begala, one of Bill Clinton's biggest advisors, is coming right out and saying, hey, you know, he needs to compromise more. I don't think so. Today's story is called Electile Dysfunction, the GOP's Incredible Shrinking Boehner, and it's written by William Salatan. Sixteen years ago, in the wake of the election night landslide that brought him to power, Newt Gingrich asserted a mandate for his contract with America and a new leadership role for himself. The Republican whip in a minority role is a middle linebacker, he said of his previous job. The Speaker of the House is a head coach. Last week, in the wake of another landslide, incoming Speaker John Boehner sent a very different message. While our new majority will serve as your voice in the people's house, he said, we must remember it's the president who sets the agenda for our government. The president? You've just been handed 60 House seats by voters disgusted with the president and you're deferring to him? This is the difference between Gingrich and Boehner. Gingrich set the agenda. 
He put forward a platform, treated the election as a referendum on it, and tried to implement it. He governed. He played quarterback, or at least head coach. For this, Gingrich paid a steep price. Against his offense, President Clinton played middle linebacker. In 1995 and 1996, Clinton ran against Gingrich's agenda and beat it. From this episode, Boehner seems to have learned a political lesson. Don't play offense. Stay in the role of middle linebacker. Let the president set the agenda. For two years, with an eye on the midterms, Boehner has followed this strategy, refusing to put forward a clear program that President Obama could attack. What's surprising is that Boehner is sticking with this defensive posture even after winning power. He's been thrust into leadership, but doesn't want it. On election night 1994, Gingrich told CBS News that the GOP's victory was a mandate for an agenda. I would start with our contract with America, which we put in TV Guide, which is very specific, which 330 House Republican candidates signed, he said. The American people tonight seem to be accepting the contract. Gingrich called on his party to accept the contract with the American people and implement the changes people voted for. Gingrich acknowledged Clinton's authority, but cast him as a responder to the new agenda. At least half of our contract with America are things that the president should be able to support, Gingrich argued. He added, we are bound to some extent by the contract, but within that framework, we'd like to work with the president. Boehner asserts no such mandate or central role. In his speech last week, he framed the referendum of 2010 in strictly negative terms. Across the country right now, we're witnessing a repudiation of Washington, a repudiation of big government, and a repudiation of politicians who refuse to listen to the American people. As to his own agenda, Boehner offered only the vaguest boilerplate, cutting spending, reducing the size of government, and giving government back to the people. Instead of clarifying these terms, he repeatedly promised to listen to voters and do their bidding. The people's priorities will be our priorities, and the people's agenda will be our agenda, he said. We are humbled by the trust that the American people have placed in us, and we recognize that with this trust comes the responsibility to listen, and listen we will. He sounded like the wretched, gelatinous boyfriend who promises to be whatever you want. Nor did Boehner proclaim a new relationship between Congress and the public, as Gingrich did. On the contrary, Boehner emphasized the centrality of Obama's relationship with the public. We hope President Obama will now respect the will of the people, change course, and commit to making changes that they are demanding. And to the extent that he's willing to do that, we're ready to work with him. Politically, Boehner's deference makes sense. Voters are angry. They want the economy fixed, but it's too messed up to be repaired before the next election. In these circumstances, the worst place to be from an electoral standpoint is in power. You want to be the linebacker, not the quarterback. You're better off with Boehner's vacuous pledge to America than the substantial contract with America. But politics, too, has its price. Fear of electoral failure can make you impotent in office. You spend the years between elections ducking the risks of leadership. You legislate and hedgislate, but you never really legislate. For the sake of your career, you waste it. That's what I admire about Gingrich and Obama. Obama may lose more seats in Congress than Clinton did. He may be thrown out after one term. But he'll have accomplished more than Clinton did. 
because he focused on doing the job, not keeping it. The voters have spoken, Mr. Speaker. It's time to leave. Do it and take the consequences. coverage. Before I go tonight, I'd like to speak to all Americans. So if you are an American who is not currently watching, I'm going to give you a moment to turn on your TV. <laughs> are they watching? Okay, good. Good evening, every American. Today, the nation has been riding a GOP wave, and at midnight, we have come ashore. As this is the sixth live election broadcast I have done with this news organization, I've learned many things along the way. First and most importantly, Viacom doesn't pay overtime when you're working until midnight. <laughs> Here's another one. When states turn red or blue on the election maps, that doesn't happen when you actually go there. <laughs> it's disappointing. But most of all, I've learned to keep things in perspective. The important thing for every American to remember, whether you are happy or depressed by tonight's results, is this is how it will be forever. <laughs> the 2010 election is the election to end all election. It will be the last time anyone has a chance to affect the composition of our government. You see, this conservative wave is just like a wave on the ocean, in that once it has crested, foamed, and reached land, there will never be another wave. The ocean will remain now glassy and lifeless as Nancy Pelosi's eyes. Seriously, she's insane. I once saw her give a speech to an empty service elevator. So if you're sad, you will remain sad. If you're happy, you'll be happy forever. Maybe there will be more elections someday in the distant future. I don't know. I'm not a psychic. Maybe one day I will be a psychic. I don't know that either. As I said, I'm not a psychic. But I do know that a party has been swept into power on the platform of change. And that has never bitten anyone in the ass. I'll be here tomorrow to get further into these election results and what they mean. But essentially, I believe they mean everything's fixed. So tomorrow's show might just be a five-minute wrap-up followed by an encore presentation of Soul Plane. You won't want to miss it. Good night, America. And good job. There's a battle ahead. Many battles are lost. But you never reach the end of the road while you're traveling with me. That's it. Uh, I was right, and I, uh, if anything, I'm going to double down, okay? Uh, because there was the faction within the, the progressive movement that said, no, 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 play nice, 
the Democrats uh, need to be supported, and if you just you know uh, you know support them enough and you cheerlead for them, uh, they will deliver and they'll win and they'll do this and they'll do that. Well, they didn't and they lost. Okay, and so I the right idea is not to keep supporting Democrats just because they're Democrats because they got a D next to their name. Look, the system is corrupt. It has corrupted the Democratic Party. Right now, I think their role is to keep on losing to the Republicans. They're playing the Washington generals. Uh, that's their role. Uh, and and I, I'm not going to support the Democrats. If anything, I'm going to attack the Democrats ten times more. Okay, Because you're, if you're waiting on this Democratic Party to come to the rescue, you're waiting on a terribly false hope. Okay. Now, it's not to say that the Republicans are good. I need you to have a little bit of logic. I can't have you sitting there go, oh, he doesn't like the Democrats, he most like the Republicans. No, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know I don't like the Republicans. I think the Republicans are a wholly owned subsidiary of multinational corporations and the richest people and the most powerful people in the country. The Republicans are useless. We all already know that. But if you're hoping against hope that Obama will do the right thing and the Democratic Party will do the right thing, well, that hope got extinguished tonight, okay? It's over. They don't know what the hell they're doing and they got clobbered. The right answer was to fight. The right answer was to kick the Republican ass. But they were never going to give you that answer because their role wasn't that. It was to lose because the system is so awash with money that the money has bought everything, including the Democratic Party, and they've set them up as patsies. And if you wishing against wish, your wishes that they're going to come through is not going to work for you. Tear them down, okay? That doesn't mean replace them with Republicans. It means in primaries you have to run real progressives who are going to go after these guys. It means you work towards it. Now, don't wait for a politician. Work towards fundamental change of the system. And fundamental changes, campaign finance reform, first of all, okay? As long as the lobbyists pay these politicians, they will buy them. They will buy them all. They will buy the Republicans and they will buy the Democrats, and they already have. Then number two, corporations are not human beings. If you give them the rights of human beings, First Amendment rights, the right to uh, spend money and buy politicians, they will do it. They're not immoral, they're amoral. It is their job to go get a good investment. And a United States Senator is an excellent investment. You pay a nickel and you get billions back, okay? They are amoral machines, and you have to fight that. They are not human beings. They should not have the same constitutional rights that we have. Number three, when you talk about you know, uh, the senators and congressmen and presidents and their staff going to get jobs afterwards as lobbyists and cashing in, well, then that, and generals too, by the way, that gives them tremendous incentive to sell us out so they can cash in later, as Chris Dodd is about to do, the senator from Connecticut, as almost every retired guy from the Pentagon does by going to work for a defense contractor. Here's my new proposal. Here's what we do. If you worked in the government, either as staff or as a congressman, senator, or a colonel or a general, you're banned from working for those companies for 10 years. They'll say, oh no, but how do I get rich? Well, you're not supposed to get rich. You're supposed to serve us. You're supposed to be our representatives. The point of there isn't to go get rich and rob us. No, you're banned for 10 years. If you don't want it, don't take the job. 
Don't become a colonel. Don't become a general. Don't become a senator. There'll be other people who'll take the job. If we don't go for that fundamental change, the Democrats, along with the Republicans, will rob you blind as they're doing right now. Forget the Democrats. Certainly forget the Republicans. We have to start doing it on our own. And if any politician doesn't agree with that, rip them down, man. Rip them down. And I don't care what party they're in. You have to have primaries. And, you, and that's the whole point of primaries. If the bums don't do what you want and they're not doing it, throw their ass out! Thanks for listening, everyone. And look at that. We are completely out of time. I just simply was not ruthless enough to get rid of any of this material that I thought was great. Uh, I wanted to get it all in the show, and it didn't really fit, but I made it fit anyways. So don't be irritated that the show went long. Just think of it as bonus content, and it was awesome. Before I go, I just want to thank all of the volunteers who have been absolutely kicking ass uh, helping out the show in huge, huge ways behind the scenes. So thanks to everyone uh, who's been doing any kind of volunteer task for me. And, uh, and then I want to thank a couple of members. Jeffrey L. signed up for a monthly membership back on July 31st. And Jeffrey went above and beyond just to help out the show a little bit more. So thanks very much for that. And Brittany B. signed up for a regular yearly membership uh, b that began on August 31st. So huge thanks to both Brittany and Jeffrey and all the members who make the show possible. Please keep spreading the word about the show to everyone you know. I uh, greatly appreciate it, and so will your friends. They will love you for it. Stay connected with the show between episodes online by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Also a good way to spread the word to friends that way. And for details on the show itself, including links to sources and all the music used in this and every episode, all of that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right